This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you very much. I'm really delighted to be here. Um, it's been an exciting decade for me, and the excitement mostly derives from what is the complete now genome sequence of the dog. The dog was sequenced in 2005, and just like the human sequence, it's led to revolution in biomedical applications, and also, and I think even more dramatically, to evolutionary biology. We know, for instance, now in humans, we have ancestry from Neanderthals and Denisovans, and similarly, we're finding out about the secrets of dog ancestry and how that relates to the process of evolution. So here are some of the interesting players in um, dog evolutionary biology. First, there's Shadow, who's Craig Venter's dog. And Craig Venter is the um, entrepreneur, uh, genomicist, who um, has a habit of sequencing everything around him, including his dog, a bucket of seawater from his yacht. And Shadow, like in the human situation, the sequence of Shadow actually beat out the organized sequence at MIT Broad and was published in 2004. Um, and the 2005 publication was of a boxer named Tasha, um, also a star in this show. And since I'm talking about the evolution of dogs from wolves, one of the other stars are gray wolves. And that is the ancestor of all domestic dogs. And this is a particularly interesting star of that show. It's a black gray wolf. If you traveled around North America, you'd find on typically half of a population of gray wolves are actually black. And this is a famous male, a real Casanova in Yellowstone, responsible for many offspring, is black. And that black mutation, that black gene, actually comes from ancient hybridization with domestic dogs, probably Native American dogs. And black wolves have higher fitness. They have higher survivorship throughout their life. um, And they have better resistance against disease. So dogs have conferred an advantageous allele on, on wolves. And that advantageous allele, that adaptation variant, has um, been sort of transformed the entire species, just in North America. Lastly, and not least, is um, my own dog as a child, and started me off on this inquiry, actually, because I just could not believe that that dog descended from recently from something like a wolf. <laughs> I mean, imagine how modified it is, not only in size, but in cranial conformation. You know, think about a weird-looking two-pound human. And that human still walks and talks and catches frisbees and is entirely functional. Talk about laws of growth. So I'm going to focus on a number of issues today. First, on what we now know from complete genome sequences and genome-wide studies about the timing of dog domestication. This is important because the timing provides us with a context that is an evolutionary context. At what time did dogs get domesticated? Secondly, I'll talk about geographic origins, and that is where the dog was domesticated. This turns out to be a very difficult question, and is now being resolved by ancient DNA and complete genome sequences. Then I'll end with the nature of selection of domestic dogs. How have humans intentionally or unintentionally transformed the wolf into something that looks like the diversity of dogs today? So this is just the briefest outline of my talk. I'll begin with these wonderful genomic studies and also now are blended with um, similar studies on ancient DNA, how that provides us with insight about timing and location of domestication. Then I'll talk about something about traits in terms of phenotypic diversification. I already mentioned in the introduction this idea of juvenilization. And then I'll end up 
with what has been the meat of my work over the last decade, that is talking about the genetics underlying discrete traits in domestic dogs. I'll begin with a little introduction, how to build a dog, tells us something about the process, and then what genes tell us, what is the genetic basis of phenotypic traits, and lastly, I'll try to sum it all up in a synthetic way, talking about evolution of the dog. So, to begin with, genomic studies. So, these are studies of the complete genome of dogs that comprise about 2.4 billion base pairs. These genome sequences tell us an awful lot. In fact, in each one of you, your genome sequences is a kind of summary of the whole history of your species. And to think about that, imagine you have two parents and you share half of their genomes and then you have four grandparents. And we can go back to the point where you have a thousand ancestors, not just two or four back through your reverse, through your family tree. And at that point, you have on the order of one over a thousand, or 0.1% of your genome derives from those thousand ants, each of those thousand ancestors. So since you have three billion base pairs in your genome, you have three million base pairs from each of those thousand ancestors. That's a lot. So your sampling, your genome samples a huge population going back through time to the beginning of your species. So even a single genome can tell us a lot about ancestry. So with that introduction, we can start with the study of just six genomes, which we did do. We picked two very divergent dogs, Basinji and Dingo. Dingo um, um, in Australia has been there for 4,000 years anyway. And the boxer genome that was done. And then look at wolves from all the putative centers of origination. Chinese wolf, Israeli wolf, Croatian wolf, European um, origination. We can ask, a number of questions of this phylogeny. First, look at this phylogeny. All dogs, all dogs are forming a single group, all wolves forming a single group. Pity, because we'd hope that one of these lineages would be more directly ancestral to domestic dogs and tell us something about where dogs are domesticated. Also, we can specifically look at the divergence times in this tree. Here's the ancestor of domestic dogs and wolves. That happened some period of time ago. And then not much uh, more recent than that has been the, domestic, has been the um, divergence of all these uh, different wolf populations. And then about the same time were the divergence of these very different breeds. So there is a problem. Wolves actually, even though they have hundreds of year, thousands of years of ancestry, they seem to have diverged all the living wolves really recently. And dogs at about the same time scale. So this is a problem because Wolves are so similar. Imagine if a new human species evolved in, from a population in Manhattan. And then sometime later, we, just, we wanted to find out, well, where did this new human species come from? Well, as it turns out, at that time, Manhattan, except for socioeconomic factors, was, those people weren't that different from people in the Bronx or in Brooklyn. So because they were so close at the time of that origination event, we can't really look back in time and tell which population that human came from. We have the same problem with dogs. What we can say is that dog origins, dog domestication, based on kind of a molecular clock idea, occurred about 15,000 years ago or more, likely more. So it's in the context of hunter-gatherers. This is where dogs were domesticated. And we have to think about dogs, the only large carnivore ever domesticated. In the context of hunter-gatherers, it must have done something different, different than most of our other domesticates that were domesticated in association with agriculture. Also, population size. We can re reconstruct that by um, analytical techniques. 
And it turns out that actually the common ancestor of dogs and wolves, the effective size, the sort of genetic size, was extremely large. If we look at the effective size today of dogs, something like 2,000, wolves also very small, and golden jackal very small. This is similar to the situation in humans, where our effective size is on the order of 10,000, even though there are billions of us on Earth. That's because the expansion is very recent. Similarly, is the case with dogs. And what it means is that the population of wolves from which dogs evolved was much larger than the effective size of wolves today. So we can't compare modern wolves with dogs. We have to compare this ancient population, and that means the bottleneck, the genetic bottleneck during domestication was much larger than we thought. Lastly, and um, you know, to our dismay, Admixtures are really common things. It isn't just one nice, clean speciation event. Actually, dogs interbreed with wild wolves. You know, all, wolf, all dogs today aren't kept on a leash. Neither were they in the past. They were roaming about freely and meeting up with wolves and cha- exchanging genes. The Sinji um, with, with Israeli wolf and even golden jackals and wolves. So admixture confounds our ability to reconstruct the ancestry of dogs. We can look at a, this population size in a completely different way. Here are years ago, and then this is the population size. Here are wolves. These are domestic dogs. For quite a time, they have a similar trajectory. That makes sense, because they have a common ancestry. And then the demographic tra- trajectories diverge. Both decline till about 10,000 years ago. So there's a decline in both gray wolves and dogs. But this divergence probably symbolizes the start of the domestication process when the domestic dog gene pool was segregated from the wolf gene pool. So some things we can conclude from all this. Ancestral wolf diversity is 10 times higher than today, so dogs have gone through an extreme bottleneck. Dogs evolved with migratory hunter-gatherers. That is the evolutionary context we have to begin with to try to understand how dogs evolved. And we feel it has something to do with wolves adapting the habit of following humans around, and that caused them to be reproductively isolated from wolves that were resident um, and territorial. And that's the case actually in the high Arctic today, where we have migratory wolves following the barren ground caribou, and we have resident wolves that live in the same places but don't migrate. They are reproductively isolated. So, Here we're kind of stuck. We couldn't say all that much. We look towards ancient mitochondrial genomes. The fossil record of dogs is remarkable in that we have some dogs going back, dog-like things, going back 36,000 years ago. The wonderful thing is that these dog-like forms are nearly contemporaneous with wolf-like forms. So we can compare them and see whether they're closest to wolves or already on the trajectory of domestication. This is a blinding phylogenetic tree of all the mitochondrial DNA sequences that we looked at. I'm not going to make you study it. I'm just going to make one or two points. First of all, some of these very old dogs, which are in this light red color here, left no living ancestry in domestic dogs. And they were either aborted domestication events or they were a kind of wolf that we didn't recognize. And we know there were a few different kinds of wolves back then. The other thing I want you to realize is there are just four groupings of dogs today, what we call clades, all in red. And light red are ancient dogs, and dark blue are wolves, and light blue are ancient wolves. So kind of think the light color is sort of like ghosting, you know, it's the ghost of modern wolves. And let's look at all these clades individually, starting with clade, what we call clade D. 
So here in clay deed, we look just close up, we focus in on the phylogeny. We can see that the, the closest living form is actually, the closest form sequence is from a dog, or a wolf, sorry, from Switzerland. Light blue wolf. So this dog D, um, which these two sequences that are in this clay are found just in um, Scandinavian dogs. And that timing um, is something in the order of 18,000 years ago that those two sequences diverge. How about clade A? Part we call this A because it is the largest clade. It contains about 70% of the diversity, genetic diversity in dogs, 47 sequences. And we believe this is the, more, the, the oldest um, sort of big bang of dog domestication. They descend to about 18,000 years ago, and they have ancestry with gray wolves, again, from Switzerland. Ancient gray wolves, no longer living today. And the common ancestry of these dog sequences uh, and sequences from the New World, which are ancient dog sequences, and some of these are very old, eight and a half thousand years, and these are dogs that entered the New World before the Bering Land Bridge closed on the order of 11, 12,000 years ago. They're their oldest lineages of dogs that we can derive. They have been there you know, since the Bering Land Bridge closed. This is very kind of reassuring to us that these ancient sequences group with modern dog sequences to form a single clade, and they descend to a common origin about 20,000, 19, 20,000 years ago. And they have closest ancestry to wolves from Switzerland. Let's look at some other clades. Here are dogs, ancient dogs from Germany. They have closest ancestry to dog clade C and other wolves. Here, um, closest ancestry of Scandinavian wolves, uh, Ukrainian wolves to dog clade B that has 17 sequences in it. So that's it. Everywhere in the tree, there are no Chinese wolves close to living dog sequences. There are no Middle Eastern wolves. They're all European wolves or dogs. And we, we only are left to conclude that uh, dogs have a European origin about 20,000 years ago. Also, in these mitochondrial DNA sequences, because they evolve quickly, we can begin to see the sequence of expansion beginning about two or 3,000 years ago when human populations expanded as well. Okay, let's move on to traits. This is my fondness for dogs. I don't own a dog, but I love their diversity. And this just shows from an old American Museum pamphlet, the notion they just so, are so diverse that we can't really maybe account them from even a single um, wolf population. I love them because they're a model for um, diversification and the constraints on diversification, morphologic, anatomical constraints. And my first work focused on, as was mentioned earlier, juvenilization. And this juvenilization is sort of uniform among many different dog breeds. And you can imagine we like it in the sense that we've selected it because we love things that are puppy-like. And keeping this confirmation into adults might have been helpful or uh, desirable and might have gone along with behavioral suites as well. My main point, actually, in looking at dogs first was it was perhaps this kind of great difference between puppy and adult dogs in morphology that drove some of this diversification in domestic dogs. We don't have the same kind of difference, say, between kittens and adult cats. I have cats. They all basically look the same in terms of cranial conformation. But dogs are vastly different because if we truncate this growth process or speed it up, that is, keep the juvenile rate into adulthood, we can manufacture very dramatically different kinds of brainial conformation. Although I, I like this explanation, it wasn't satisfying without understanding the genetic 
basis, and that's why soon after my PhD, I just focused on molecular genetics. All right, so let's talk about that, the genetics of these traits. What kind of insight does that provide us? There are really two dominant mechanisms for building a new dog. First is you cross two individuals, they look the same, in this case identical, and then um, you find in your litter an, an unusual individual. And then you back cross individuals from the litter and you fix that morphology. Darwin called these sports. Well, they're mutants. He didn't know anything about genetics. And they're quite common in domestic dogs, and we feel are, are, explain the origin of many breeds. This kind of selection for a weirdness, for novelty, is something maybe that uniquely humans do and differentiate dogs from all the domesticated animals. Well, Darwin loved dogs, of course, and went around the countryside in, in, you know, making inquiries of breeders, asking them how they did their thing. And he came up with the idea that Dogs were a good analog for natural selection. It's kind of artificial selection. And notioned the idea that there's progressive selection in many dog breeds. So that's the other mechanism. What we discovered um, in analyzing genetics of dogs is that basically all this variability is due to just a few um, characters, just a few genetic traits, just a few genes. And... um, you know, this is very different from the case in other domestic animals. A gene called IGF-1, for instance, is responsible for more than 50% of the variation in body size in dogs. If we look at humans, 40 genes that affect body height only explain 5% of the variation. So dogs are very different in this way. So this is all summarized, in a sense, um, in this plot, which is a genetic similarity plot of domestic dogs. And what discovers from that plot is wolves are ancestral to domestic dogs. There are some ancient breeds. And that there are many breeds that breeders have classified according to function or phenotype, sight hounds, spaniels, herding dogs. They all share a lot of genetic similarity. The outlier here are, say, toy breeds, where each of the breeds owes their origin to a different genetic lineage. So what we hypothesize is there's two processes going on in domestic dogs. The first is breeding like with like. So we want to make a bit of sight hound. Well, we take an, another sight hound. It's already a distinct breed. Interbreed them, and we come up in the end over time with collectively a group that's genetically related but expresses this phenotypic trait that sight hounds have. The other process is discrete mutations, like these sports. Once these sports appeared, then they're shopped around all dogdom on different genetic backgrounds, giving the appearance of diversity, but actually its genetic toolkit is very narrow. And we tried to test this idea um, looking at historical records and verify the fact that at least toy breeds um, or dwarfism comes from a cross between a toy breed and a distinct breed. And this, to end, this is just the process of evolution going on in domestic dogs. It's actually much more simple than we had envisioned. It relies, unlike other species, on sports. That process began in the Victorian era um, with the focus on novelty rather than function. And who knows where we're going next? I kind of think that this is an interesting future, uh, this sort of research. Um, This is a contest that that was put up by a dog company. And um, I can't tell the difference between some of these dogs and their owners. Thank you very much.
Thank you so much to the conference organizers for inviting me to this symposium. It's a great pleasure for me to speak at this symposium and at the Salk Institute. I'm very happy to share uh, the work, our work with you, but particularly I will be working about uh, the program which was started by two amazing uh, scientists, Dmitry Belayev and Ludmila Trud. Um, it's at the Institute of Psychology and Genetics of the Russian Academy of Sciences in uh, 1959. Dmitry Belayev was an uh, evolutionary geneticist who was thinking a lot about animal domestication, and Dr. Trude was so fascinated about his ideas that she moved to work with him uh, to Siberia from um, uh, Moscow University. Uh, so they, um, at that time, there was a lot of debates about what was the first during animal domestication. Is it was selection for morphological traits, or it was selection for production, or domesticated animals are actually results of hybridization of different species. And Dmitry Belayev argued strongly that selection for behavior was the first and the most important thing during animal domestication. And the experiment which he uh, set up kind of formed our um, genetically centered view of animal domestication. So to test his hypothesis that selection was so important for animal domestication, he decided to choose the species silver fox, which is a uh, coat color variant of the red fox, which was bred in captivity at that time for about 50 years, but have never been domesticated. The far, far, farm foxes, they usually show uh, fearful and aggressive response to humans, even then uh, that they were bred uh, at captivity since late um, 19th century. Dr. Trude and uh, Dmitry Belayev visited multiple form farms across the former Soviet Union and selected several hundred of animals who became founders of the future tame strain. So first, we try to select animals who show less fearful and aggressive response to humans, and then they started to select for foxes who actually showed the willingness to interact with the humans. It's, it's amazing that selection was very fast. In less than six generations of selection, we started to see few individuals who actually was wagging their tails when we see humans. And then uh, what was also amazing thing which we did in this, during the selection process, we tried to avoid inbreeding in this population. That allowed to have an ongoing selection for, for behavior in this population for many, many years. Um, so by, by 2002, uh, the, the percent of uh, individuals in uh, the population was about 71% who we called elite. So these animals are just extremely friendly. They, you know, all what they want is basically to interact with humans. And I will show the video just in a couple of minutes. And uh, basically all foxes, tame foxes in a tame strain are tame, but they still have some gradations for them. Some of them more tame, some of them a little bit less tame. Uh, they also needed to have some control population for their studies because we did a lot of uh, behavioral observations, a lot of physiological studies, and to have more or less uh, kind of homogenized group of animals whom we have, can study as a control, we started selection of foxes for aggressive behavior in 1970. And in this case, it was a critical distance, distance between the experimenter and the caged animal uh, when animals start to show the aggressive response to humans, which count. And of course, the intensity of this aggressive response. So now I want to show you the... Uh, videos of from two populations. 
Yeah, I don't think I don't need to explain in which case we have tame animal and which case we have aggressive animal. Uh, so this is a kind of an example of just a standard test which we are using to, to test behavior of these uh, foxes. It has uh, four, four tests, four, four steps. Each is one minute long. Here's a little bit shorter version of that. And all these tests are videotaped. So you can see how different their location in the cages, postures they have, uh, sounds they make. So you can see that you know the tame fox wants just to continue to interact, while aggressive fox is just saying, you know, go away, and it's happy, happy to be without humans. What is amazing about these behaviors, you can see how different they are. But what is really amazing is that they are genetically determined. We made a lot of different experiments, uh, like cross-fostering of pups between tame and aggressive moms, uh, even transplantation of embryos, and of course breeding between tame and aggressive animals, which strongly confirmed that these behaviors have very strong genetic component. And that altogether gave us a, um, not only kind of in, in very interesting uh, uh, results of very interesting experiment, the domesticated fox, but also the model for genetic studies. And that's uh, kind of where um, uh, we started to collaborate with the, with the Dr. Truth uh, group on studying the genetic basis of these behavioral differences between tame and aggressive strains. There are several amazing uh, things about these uh, strains which really helps genetic research. First of all, which were bred separately for many, many generations, but they are outbred. So that means that if you will do the crosses, we can actually have after, afterwards, you have an opportunity for very high resolution mapping of behavior, not uh, only have very long fragments of the chromosomes where it will be extremely difficult to identify the genes which cause and the, uh, have effect on behavior. Um, it's also very important that these foxes are living under standard conditions, and we have an opportunity to test their behavior at precise st time points, and uh, we have very similar experience of interaction with humans, so which is always uh, not the case uh, with the dogs. So to, to, to do genetic studies, to actually to understand what were the genes for which Belayev uh, and Truth were selecting these foxes for so many uh, generations, we set up experimental pedigrees where we bred uh, aggressive to tame fox in uh, multiple individuals in a reciprocal manner, that mom can be aggressive and dad would be tame fox and vice versa. We produced F1 individuals, and then we bred them back to tame strain, then we bred them, bred them back to aggressive strain to produce backcross populations, and also we bred them uh, to each other to produce F2 type of population, almost like dr drosophila genetics. And uh, then this, we analyzed behavior in all these crosses uh, about the same way, uh, exactly, <laughs> sorry, exactly the same way as I just shown you on the video. Uh, we tested behavior of, of each individual in this population multiple times. Uh, we had a better situation than Dr. Truth uh, 40 years ago. We have video cameras, so we could record all their behavior and then analyzed that behavior with a set of traits from video records. Then we did uh, principal component analysis and um, 
uh, came up with uh, measurable uh, um, uh, behaviors for each individual in these populations. And on this uh, figure, you can see how different behaviors of aggressive animals from tame animals, uh, from um, F, uh, F1 is kind of show behavior intermediate between aggressive and tame individuals, backwards to aggressive, very close to aggressive population, backwards to tame, very close to tame. And we have also F2, which is a little bit more aggressive um, based on the principal component one than F1 population. So what these figures show us, that this behavior is highly heritable. It's a very strictly, you know, strict heritable pattern uh, of behavior, and that is a kind of great trait to try to, uh, to map to in genetic studies, to try to identify the underlying genes. <coughs> so we genotyped our pedigrees with uh, dog-derived microsatellite markers because we didn't have any res special resources for the folks. And we identified about 10 significant QTLs, uh, which we call the quantitative trait loci, the regions in the genome, which uh, most likely have signals of uh, um, selection, which uh, have effect on behavior. And particularly what's interesting, uh, FOX chromosome 12, where we identified at least two loci which have a strong effect on behavior in these FOXs. Uh, so now when we have this loci, what is our next step? Of course, we want to identify genes and uh, pathways which are involved in behavior. But what is, was also very interesting, when we looked at the, compared the region which we identified in the FOX, uh, it, this region overlaps with um, the most significant region which um, Dr. Wayne group found, which differentiate dogs from wolves. But that in the research which was done by Dr. Wayne, we don't really know what was that region is responsible for. It differentiates dogs from wolves, but we don't know if it actually has any behavioral uh, importance or not. And it was quite amazing that the most significant, our most significant loci was overlapped with the dog loci. Of course, we do not expect that it will be the same mutation, and we do not really think that it always will be the same genes which are the same between dogs and foxes which are involved in uh, friendly behavior or aggressive behavior, but uh, we expect that the pathways probably will be to much extent the same. And to be able to get... Uh, Inside of the, these pathways, we can do a lot of different studies with this. Because now, finally, we have the uh, genome of the fox. The complete genome was um, uh, sequenced and assembled at Bijai Genomic Institute. And now uh, we, we're working with this genome. Uh, we have huge uh, pedigrees which segregate in behavior in these foxes. So we can study genetic architecture of these behaviors and to use the whole genome sequence and the single nucleotide polymorphisms map uh, to actually have, finally have good genetic markers. We can do selective sweep mapping within this tame and aggressive populations to identify the regions of increased homozygosity in their genomes and to reduce our QTL intervals. We can do RNA-seq analysis to identify the uh, these pathways, and we can do imaging studies, which we started to do in collaboration with Dr. Irene Hecht and uh, Todd Prius at Emory University. So this folks, I just want to demonstrate that this folks actually is kind of um, such a deep resource which can give us an information about um, systems which are involved in regulation of behavior, which is not so easily available in many other systems. And by synergism with the dog studies, we can actually see if it is universal or not, with these mechanisms are universal or not, involved in domestication and regulation of behavior. 
But while I still have a few minutes, I want to say about some other features of these foxes. What is interesting that uh, they, even they were selected for pretty standard, kind of standard conditions, like for example, uh, how, how fox would behave to humans than human in approaching the fox cage, it appeared that they as skillful as a dog puppies in uh, solving um, some tricks and especially. Uh, um, understanding the human pointing cues. So the Brian Hara visited the farm in Novosibirsk and he set up the pretty easy experiment where you pointing to uh, helping to understand the fox uh, where the food is and, and in this bowl or another bowl when fox cannot see in which bowl the food is. And it appeared that the tame foxes uh, understand this test very well while foxes from um, standard farm bred population don't do that very well. So we... Uh, I think that, of course, that uh, uh, because of tame foxes are so comfortable with humans, that maybe help them. But these uh, farm-bred foxes were also socialized very, very well. But, but still, we, you know, we just didn't do as well in, in this test. As it was mentioned before, the, the socialization period was changed in the tame foxes. The tame foxes do not have that spike of the rise of the cortisol, which... Um, uh, foxes from conventional population do have, or, you know, the, for example, wolves have and, and dogs do not have, which kind of indicates the closure of the socialization period. The tame foxes have uh, very, uh, this socialization period open for a long time, and that's actually very, very difficult to scare them with something. They are very resilient to any uh, stress conditions, so it can really help them to learn way more about the environment than uh, indiv individuals who have early closed uh, socialization window. It's also was interesting that when we started the experiment, we saw a lot of changes in uh, also in morphology, in appearance, like for example with star phenotype, uh, in physiology, and um, uh, in development. We, we don't really, like physio physiological changes would include several things. Uh, uh, first of all, it would be different levels of uh, glucocorticoid, but also some uh, reproduction changes. Some foxes got the opportunity to be reproduced twice per year in difference from uh, the usual foxes, which can reproduce only once. Later on, all these features were almost lost uh, from this population, but we never really selected for these features of these animals. We selected continuous selection solely for behavior. But what is interesting, when this uh, star phenotype is still present in the population, and when we set up our experimental crosses, uh, we still have some animals which have a star phenotype in this crosses, and we don't really see any segregation between uh, this uh, star phenotype and behavior. So that kind of brings us to the question, what was the mechanisms of uh, this co-inheritance of different traits? Is it was pleiotropy, selection for behavior was actually leading for, to changes, uh, to, the selection for some genes which have effect on multiple traits? Is it was uh, genetic drift because it was closed populations, some regions were fixed just in random? Or it was a hitchhiking and closely we were selecting for regions on the chromosomes which had several closely linked genes. And our data so far kind of is more in support of the late hypothesis that this perhaps was a hitchhiking and then um, when the animals were going through several generations of selection, the recombination event in this population accumulated and these strong bonds between different genes were braked. 
So in the end, I just uh, would like to uh, summarize a little bit what Fox experiment uh, uh, gave us, provides us with. And first of all, I think one of the most important things is that it's really helped to form the genetically censured view of animal domestication. Second, it's shown that selection, very strong selection for something can actually lead to some other changes. And if we would decided, for example, to select foxes for uh, very pro reproductive abilities, so we decided to get foxes who can reproduce twice per year uh, better by some uh, reasons than foxes which reproduce once per year, we perhaps could have an opportunity to do if we would kind of follow on that. So that's maybe the way how uh, selection of um, dogs for behavior also works. Um, and first of all, in the, in the third, uh, which we, I and my collaborators are particularly excited, of course, because we're using it in our work, is that they provided us with an excellent model, uh, which have very deep potential to understand our, to understand the genetic regulation, and not maybe even genetic regulation of, of different behaviors. So in the end, I would like to thank my collaborators. Uh, this is Dr. Ludmila Trout. This is Greg Eklund, who was my long-term advisor at Cornell. This is Dr. Gordon Lark from the University of Utah, uh, who is an expert in uh, uh, genetics of quantitative uh, traits in, in Kenyans. Uh, and um, this is now my lab at the University of Illinois, who did, and these people did a lot of molecular work with this study. And uh, of course, I would like, I'm very grateful for support for this research. Thank you. So I would also like to start by expressing my gratitude to the organizers of this very stimulating uh, symposium. It's just wonderful to be here and hear so many people talking about something I've become very interested in in the, in the last few years. The last major milestone in the seven million years of hominid evolution is the emergence of modern humans or homo sapiens, people who for the first time fundamentally looked and behaved like us. While a date of around 200,000 years ago was frequently given for this dynamic, there is still substantial debate regarding the timing as something that was an ongoing process rather than a single point in geological time. Anatomically, it is widely recognized that facial size reduction or gracilization or feminization, as it is sometimes called, as well as facial retraction, are key defining traits for our species. And while not all specialists might agree, I would argue that many of the more detailed modern craniofacial traits, like the presence of a chin, are largely secondary consequences of this reduction in facial size. While there is broad agreement on this anatomical pattern, there remains a major unresolved question regarding what evolutionary process or processes produce craniofacial reduction in our species. A number of evolutionary explanations have been suggested. One of the most pervasive is that fire and cooking reduced the need for extra oral food processing, which led to reduced muscle size and force, and thus reduced skeletal size and robusticity in modern humans. This idea has a long history in paleoanthropology. But as Richard Wrangham has argued recently, fire use precedes the advent of modernity with evidence for fire use in Homo erectus as early as 1.5 million years ago. And even those that contest early use of fire still argue for regular fire use in cooking by 400,000 years ago, a time period that also precedes modern humans. Other explanations, like the idea that facial retraction produces 
an optimum one-to-one ratio between the length of the vertical and horizontal components of the vocal tract, thus aiding speech production, while true, could just as easily be a secondary result of facial retraction rather than its cause. There are several other explanations that have been proposed that have similar weaknesses. In fact, I would argue that there are sufficient shortcomings in all of the selective explanations that have been posited to date to warrant considering other alternative explanations. And that brings up the possibility of what you've been hearing today, um, uh, self-domestication in dogs and some interesting anatomical parallels in wolf-to-dog evolution and pre-modern to modern humans regarding craniofacial changes. Dogs also exhibit less projecting faces and more delicate skulls compared to their wolf ancestors. The self-domestication model, as it applies to dogs and some other organisms, in its simplest terms, is that wild animals may domesticate when tame behavior enhances their survival near humans. Tolerating the presence of humans requires reduced levels of fear and natural aggression, and selection for reduced aggression can have correlated effects on morphology, physiology, and other aspects of behavior and psychology. The well-known long-term study of silver foxes in Russia that you just heard a great deal about, in which wild foxes have been selectively bred for over 50 years based entirely on lack of fear fear and aggression towards humans, has provided a key linchpin in understanding dog domestication. This work has allowed inferences from prehistoric empirical patterns in dogs to be compared to actual experimental tests of these inferences. As the silver fox researchers have shown, and as you've been hearing about, domestication produces important neurotransmitter changes. It's widely recognized that elevated serotonin levels are linked to the inhibition of aggressive behavior. And early on, it was uh, learned in the fox experiments that tryptophan hydroxylase, the key enzyme in serotonin serotonin synthesis, was much higher in the tame foxes compared to the wild ones. And also, as you've heard about, basal and stress-induced cortisol levels three to five times lower in domesticated foxes. There are key implications for these experiments for both dog and human evolution. Impeding the development of the neurophysiological substrate of fear or aggression stems from the regulatory effects of genes affecting growth rates. These genes are targeted by selection under domestication. They also regulate the growth rates of other traits, including craniofacial shape. Today, I am presenting one set of parallel comparisons between canid and hominid evolution from a larger set that I, along with my chief collaborator, Scott Maddox, at the University of Missouri-Columbia, have developed in support of extending the self-domestication model to modern humans. Changes in the skull, as you've been hearing, particularly a shortened rostrum or snout, were at the leading edge of features key to the morphological transition from wolves to dogs. Genome-wide association scans of skull length in dogs demonstrates that multiple quantitative trait loci are strongly associated with variation in face length. Here we use nasion procyon as a measure of facial height or length, and basion procyon as a measure of facial projection across separate brain case and facial modules. A relatively wider rostrum and wider zygomatic arches also characterize dogs compared to ancestral wolves. Accordingly, we included bizygomatic breath in our comparisons. We also compare biorbital breath across the lateral orbital margins because this measure is often available when the zygomatic arches are damaged or missing in fossil hominins, and because it appears less sensitive than ZYB 
to environmental modifications, particularly in HOMO. For the raw dimensions in our hominins, our maximum sample size in pre-modern HOMO, which ranged from early to late Pleistocene, is 30. The maximum early anatomically modern human sample associated with Middle Stone Age or Mousterian technology is 7. And the late anatomically modern human sample is 106. Virtually all of these taken on original specimens by myself uh, or Scott. For canids, we collected measurements on a total of 54 individuals. These included 21 wolves and 19 modern dogs from the mammalogy collections at the Field Museum in Chicago. There are potential problems with relying exclusively on modern dogs in our study. The main concern is that intense pedigreed breeding over the past 140 years was based on selection for distinctive morphology, as, again, as you've been hearing. This has resulted in an astonishing array of morphological diversity. And this is reflected in our field museum sample, which included a large range of size and shape, from a St. Bernard on one end of the range to a very small terrier. Hunter-gatherer dogs, in contrast, tend to show far less variation across their geographic ranges. The same is true for feral dogs around the world, indicating that behavior, rather than selection for specific body types, is what was occurring for the vast majority of time in which dogs evolved from wolves. Prehistoric dogs may be more relevant in testing the self-domestication model in the same way that late Pleistocene, early Holocene human samples are often more relevant as comparators to archaic fossil humans than our urbanized, industrialized humans. Accordingly, we also collected data sets on some of the earliest and best-preserved domesticated dogs in the New World. These were all archaeologically recovered from intentional burials dating between four to 5,000 years ago from the Native American archaic period Kentucky Green River Valley site complex. We combed through a collection of hundreds of burials to find a maximum of 19 individuals with well-preserved mandibles and associated postcrania, and 15 of these individuals also preserved relatively complete crania. This slide summarizes the percent change in median facial widths, facial heights, and facial projection in our sample from ancestral starting values. Biorbital breadth in dogs decreases from wolves by 24%, and bizygomatic breadth decreases by 27%. Dog facial height decreases from wolves to the greatest degree, makes sense, by 32%, with Bayesian-Procyon length decreasing to the next greatest degree at 28%. The late anatomically modern humans show similar patterns of size reduction when compared to pre-modern samples. Also reducing the most in facial height, 21%, and then facial projection next by 17%, both of their facial widths reduce at more modest levels of 7%. In contrast, the early anatomically modern sample shows no percent decrease at all in facial widths, even increasing to a modest degree in biorbital breadth. The early anatomically modern human sample does show approximately 9% decrease in facial height and projection from pre-moderns. Gross observations of living wolves indicates larger heads in comparisons to body size than dogs. However, Directly measured skulls and associated postcranial skeletal studies are lacking across the genus Canis, with body mass instead usually tautologically estimated from skull dimensions. Although it is not widely appreciated or studied, pre-modern humans also had larger heads in comparison to body size than modern humans. And for mid to late Pleistocene human evolution, species differences mostly manifest in the head and not the body. 
Therefore, even though it results in considerably smaller sample sizes, for example, only Neanderthals representing pre-modern Homo, it is important to consider facial measurements standardized to associated femoral head diameter as a reasonably good proxy for body mass in canids and hominins, and compare these to results obtained on the raw facial dimensions across our samples that I just showed you. When log biorbital breadth is regressed on, against long, log femoral head diameter in our canid sample fitted with least squares regression lines, the combined extant and prehistoric dog line is not significantly different from the wolf line in either the slope or the y-intercept. Both dog lines are shown here for visual comparison. All canids in our sample follow a similar negative uh, allometric scaling pattern. Here are those same variables plotted for hominins with a line fitted to the late anatomically modern human sample yielding a, a significant slope that is also negatively allometric. Note that the 95% late anatomically modern human confidence limits include the early anatomically modern human Kafsa 9 individual and two Neanderthals, La Pharisee 1 and La Chapelle. Trinkus, Ruff, and others have cogently argued that body breadth differences should be factored into body mass predictions or proxies for Neanderthals. If this was done, all of the Neanderthals would move to the right in the plot to some degree, and it is likely that Chanadar 5 and possibly Amud 1 would then fall in the late anatomically modern human 95% confidence limits as well. Like the Canids, hominin biorbital breadth is scaling along a body size vector. Removing female specimens denoted here in the slide does not alter this pattern. In contrast, when we scale nasion prosthion length against femoral head diameter and log space, we get a very different result. The combined dog line and wolf lines are significantly different in slope and y-intercepts. This means that most dogs have snout lengths that are significantly smaller than would be expected for a wolf of that body size. The dog and wolf lines only converge in the largest body sizes. Note that the prehistoric dogs have particularly short snouts in comparison to wolves. And this canid pattern is paralleled in the hominid comparison for these measures. The line fitted to the late anatomically modern human sample is shown, but it is not significantly different from zero, and thus our sample differences manifest essentially along the y-axis as a vertical gradient. In the absence of confidence limits, we compared the pre-modern and early anatomically modern individuals against the late anatomically modern homo sample using z-scores. All of the Neanderthals, even the Tabun C1 female, as well as the Shkuhul 4 and 5 early anatomically modern individuals, are significantly larger in facial height. bayesian prosthion projection essentially shows the same pattern in, in, in canids and hominins, and the other facial width measure, bizygomatic breadth, follows the other pattern that I showed you in both groups. In light of these body size scaling results, we can further interpret our original raw data results. First, cranial width measurements scale with body size in both canids and hominins so that facial reduction in breadth is more constrained. Facial reduction in height and mid-sagittal projection, on the other hand, are freed up from scaling constraints to reduce to a greater degree. Secondly, within the framework of our model, we conclude that self-domestication is most evident in upper Paleolithic humans rather than early Mousterian and Middle Stone Age-associated humans, sometimes referred to as near-moderns. 
This is precisely the conclusion drawn in a collaborative project with other researchers published in the, in the journal Current Anthropology earlier this year, which in part focused on the linkage, linkage between neurotransmitters and hormones that mediate aggressiveness and the effects of lower hormone levels in males leading to more gracilized or feminized faces. Moreover, even though we used a different sampling strategy in this publication, we came to the very same results in terms of the greater reduction in facial height compared to breath that you can see in the plot here. We argue that facial feminization in males, after about 80,000 years ago, reflects high levels of social tolerance necessary to life in higher densities and or greater cooperation among interconnected social bands. Kim Hill and colleagues have recently shown that among hunter-gatherer groups like the Aceh and the Hadza, adults typically interact with more than 300 same-sex adults during their lifetimes. They noted that this implies an even larger social universe when opposite-sex adults and children are included. Additionally, close companions often interact with a somewhat different set of individuals so that the total number of indirect interactants that each individual hears about repeatedly in detailed stories and might even meet sometime during their lifetime, as the authors point out, is clearly more than 1,000. When modeling the likelihood of cultural innovation based on these numbers, human foragers with large numbers of observed interactants accumulate improvements each generation, while chimpanzees with a much smaller number of lifetime interactants are not able to maintain or improve the initial cultural traits. The high number of individually known social interactants reported by Hill and colleagues is considerably higher than reported for any other primate and possibly more than any other species on Earth, as they put it. Hill and colleagues also noted it is also much greater than the predicted number of 150 significant social interactants known as Dunbar's number that was extrapolated from primate brain social group size regressions. It should not surprise us, as the authors further note, that humans have more relationships than their brain size alone predicts, as humans alone use language and symbolic devices to store information about potential relationships. The main reason why humans interact with so many more individuals than other apes is because human lifespans are much longer, and two, interaction between neighboring and distant residential social units is extensive. There is substantial evidence of both longer human lifespans and greater interaction and cooperation among extended social networks were not features of pre-modern humans. In light of these data presented here, I would argue that in particular, wider social networks in populations after about 80,000 years ago were the basis for the rapid spread of modern humans out of Africa and subsequent colonization of the rest of the globe. In closing, I would just like to mention that we have recently um, come to an agreement regarding a collaborative re uh, research program with uh, some of the key people that you've already heard about with the, with the silver foxes. Um, and so what we will be doing is taking a very close look at the skeletal remains, postcranial, cranial, um, from all three of the trial groups, the, the wild, the domestic, and the aggressive strains, because Surprisingly, a lot of the differences that have been noted so far have been soft tissue differences. There has not been a lot of studies just on the skeletal material itself. So that's something that will occupy us in the next year or so. And finally, I just want to mention um, a large number of collaborators, a large number of funding agencies. And in particular, I would actually like to 
thank the uh, University of Iowa Orthodontics Department for funding our trip to the Fox Farm. That was a trip of a lifetime, I must tell you. If you have a chance to do it, you must do it. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.